Welcome, everyone, to the Veterans News Hour with David Corey and Richard Hurley, a national news and talk program dedicated to military veterans' issues. And now, your hosts, David Corey and Richard Hurley. Good evening. Welcome to the Veterans News Hour for October the 15th, 2018. This is David Corey along with my co-host, Richard Hurley. Thanks for joining us this evening. We have another fast hour of news and stories for veterans, their families, and everyone interested in veteran issues. So, welcome. Hello, Richard. Hey there, David. And good evening, everybody. Tonight we start with news from Washington about some veteran issues, and then we will continue last week's discussion of our multimedia project on the cost of war and promoting peace building. But first, I'd like to acknowledge two sponsors of our show, Joyce and Joe Chivaroli, whose financial contribution help us provide this weekly show for the benefit of veterans and their families across the country. I want to remind everyone that this is a call-in show We welcome your views, your comments, and questions. So you can call us at any time during the show at 1-888-627-6008. Again, the toll-free call number is 1-888-627-6008. And every week I ask people, you know, pick up the phone and call us because we really want to know about what's going on in the lives of other veterans, veterans who might be dealing with the VA families who are dealing with with veterans who are dealing with the VA. You know, uh, we're all in this together, and we've got to figure out a way to, to help the veterans. And, and so often, so often the, the VA tends to be a, a, a stumbling block for, for veterans. So, you know, um, give us a call, 1-888-627-6008, and let us know what's going on. Now, back to you, David. Thank you, Richard. Uh, first on this evening's agenda, we have news from Washington, D.C. Our faithful listeners know that over the last uh, year and a half, we've talked on many occasions about the changes in the law affecting the VA disability claims appeal system. Well, in a press release from this past Thursday, October the 11th, 2018, the VA announced uh, that President Trump has approved the appointment of four new veteran law judges to the VA's Board of Veterans' Appeals, commonly known as the BVA. Secretary uh, Robert Wilkie said, and I quote, bringing on additional judges means the board will be better staffed to conduct hearings and decide appeals properly in a timely manner. Combined with procedural changes under the Appeals Modernization and Improvement Act of 2017, and the hiring of more than 200 additional board attorneys. This translates into better and faster services for veterans. Unquote. According to the VA's press release, veterans law judges are presidential appointees and go through a vetting process. After initial screening, the chairman of the Board of Veterans' Appeals recommends a list of candidates to the secretary of the VA. If agreed to, The list of selectees is forwarded to the White House for final approval. Once approved, selectees are notified by the chairman of the Board of Veterans' Appeals and then officially sworn in. 
The four new veteran law judges are Lauren Cryan, Evan Dykart, William Donnelly, and Cynthia Scow. They assumed their duties yesterday, October 14, 2018, and will soon begin holding hearings and signing decisions for veterans and other appellants. <clears throat> In fiscal year 2018, which just recently concluded, the board issued an historic 85,288 decisions to veterans, which was a 61.6% increase over the year before, 2017. Expanding the roster of veterans law judges will allow the board to continue issuing more decisions for veterans as the VA prepares for full implementation of the Appeals Modernization Improvement Act. That full implementation is scheduled to go into effect February 14th of 2019, just a few months ahead. This law purports to transform what we know is a complex appeals process into one that hopefully is more simplified, timely, and transparent, and giving the VA, uh, the veterans, increased choice and control over the processing of their claims. Richard, you and I have talked many times over the last year and a half about that legislation, both before it was enacted by Congress and since. So it'll be interesting to see how it actually is implemented, how it pans out to our projection. Um, over to you, Richard. You know, David, how ironic, by the way, it's going into effect February 14th on Valentine's Day. There's some irony in there somewhere. Um, you know, we when it when it comes to the uh, veteran law judges, we we always say that we you, you tend to get a more reasonable decision. You get you you, uh, you you get a little more reasonable people looking at the the, the veterans' cases, and we, we tend to be able to rely upon those decisions a lot more than we do the VA decisions. And a lot of times people don't know this, but David and I, you know, we've run into these situations where um, we're, we're at a hearing at the VA level uh, and the, um, what they call the decision review officer looks at uh, David and I and, and the veterans as well. You're probably right, guys, but, you know, I just don't feel comfortable pulling the trigger on this. And I'd be much more... I feel much more comfortable letting the BVA do it because they have that leeway to do that, and their that particular forum venue is better suited to granting this veteran's uh, claims. The problem with that is it's always a two- to three-year wait down the road. Uh, so while I agree with the decision review officer that, yes, when we get to these veteran law judges, when we lay out the the case, the veterans are more likely to win the case at that level than at the VA level. Unfortunately, it takes so much more time and so many more things can happen to that veteran, specifically the veteran could die. Um, so, you know, you know it's, it's a very imperfect system. Four new judges is, a, I guess, a good start. They probably need a lot more than that. Um, in order to really get at the core of the backlog that's going on with all of these cases. Uh, before I get to any other news, David, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, 
No, only then, other than to say that, um, you know, the, the VA is hoping that this new appeals legislation, when it goes full effect in February, actually does make things easier, more timely, more simplified, and more transparent. But they still have to deal with uh, a huge volume of backlogged appeals that were already underway before this legislation was even enacted. It's what the VA calls legacy appeals. And although they've added, um, you know, some judges over the last year, including the four most recent ones, uh, it remains to be seen um, how quickly and how effectively they're going to be able to tackle that that backlog of hundreds of thousands of, of, of cases. Uh, but uh, in any event, we'll see. It's an attempt to move forward in a positive direction, so we'll give it a chance. Okay, yep. I know you have some news. Uh, I do. Richard, I Ford do. This past Friday, October the 12th, 2018, the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs announced it has appointed Michael S. Heimel, a, far- a former director at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland, to take on new duties as director of the Washington, D.C. VA Medical Center on October the 14th. It's also called the D.C. VAMC. And the D.C. VAMC is located at 50 Irving Street, northwest Washington, D.C., in the northeast part of D.C., not far from Catholic University. In that role, HIMO will oversee delivery of health care to more than 121,050 veterans and operating a budget of $610 million. Michael's proven experience is what we need to continue to stabilize and make further improvements at the medical center, said VA Secretary Robert Wilkie. I believe our employees, volunteers, and veterans will greatly benefit from his strong leadership. A retired U.S. Army officer with 30 years of progressive experience in hospital and health system leadership, Imo has seven years of experience as CEO in an academic medical center with graduate medical education programs, and large research portfolios. From 2015 to 2017, he served as the director for Walter Reed, where he led a 240-bed facility employing 7,000 people. An operational and financial improvement leader, Heimel has demonstrated success building solid medical staff relations and community outreach programs. He also has an extensive background in health plan development, Health Professions Education and Clinical Research Oversight. Heimel holds a Master of Strategic Studies degree from the Army War College, as well as a Master of Health Administration degree from Baylor University. He earned a Bachelor of Arts degree in International Studies from Norwich University in Vermont and has been a fellow of the American College of Healthcare Executives since 2007. Back to you, David. Yeah, we wish... um... Mr. Heimel, well in his uh, new position. I know a lot of veterans in the D.C. area are relying uh, on the care provided by that facility. In other news from Washington, the VA recently won a 2018 Government Innovation Award for the VA Medical Images and Reports feature in the online health portal called My Healthy Vet. The VA will be recognized for the award at a ceremony on November the 8th, 2018 in McLean, Virginia. Launched in April of 2018, the VA Medical Images and Reports feature allows veterans with a premium My Healthy Vet account 
to view, download, and share electronic copies of their radiological studies, including x-rays, mammograms, MRI studies, and CT scans from their VA electronic health records. According to VA Secretary Robert Wilkie, quote, this is a well-deserved award for a program that elevates the level of service to our veteran patients and ensures continuity of care. It's a great example of VA's continued movement toward new programs and processes that increase quality of care, unquote. According to the VA's press release, veterans can view a wide-ranging list of accessible radiological studies, which are all available in My Healthy Vet portal three calendar days after a study report has been verified. Previously, veterans were required to submit a written request to get copies of those images. That request was then manually processed and could take up to 20 days for the veteran to get a physical copy of the results. Now, instead of going to a VA facility, veterans can choose an online self-service option on the My Healthy Vet portal to obtain a VA medical image or report. The VA medical images and reports feature standardizes uh, the viewing experience for users and makes transferring the image files and accompanying notes much easier for veterans. And since the VA medical imaging and reports went live in early April of 2018, approximately 231,000 requests and nearly 870,000 reports have been viewed through this feature. So uh, our hats off to the VA for this uh, improvement in technology to make things better for veterans and their, and their health care. In other uh, VA medical research news, in the VA's drive to help improve lives of veterans through health care discovery and innovation, a team led by VA researchers recently identified three genetic mutations that govern cholesterol levels, which could lead to the development of new drugs to treat cardiovascular disease and diabetes. Detailed results of the study uh, can be found in the October 1st issue of Nature Genetics, which is a scientific journal. According to VA Secretary Robert Wilkie, Quote, this is fantastic news, not just for veterans, but for all Americans suffering from these diseases. VA researchers have been improving the lives of veterans and all Americans through healthcare discovery and innovation for decades. Their groundbreaking research has resulted in three Nobel Prizes and numerous other national and international honors. Using data from the VA's Million Veterans Program, researchers found the three genes could be targets for treatment of heart disease, abdominal aortic aneurysm, and diabetes. VA research showed that those specific mutations to the genes had better cholesterol and triglyceride levels than those without mutations. The VA's Million Veteran Program, which they call the MVP, is a national voluntary research program funded by the VA's Office of Research and Development. The MVP partners with veterans receiving care, the Veterans Health Administration, to study how genes affect their health. And as of late September of 2018, the MVP has enrolled more than 700,000 veterans. It is already one of the world's largest databases of health and genomic information. The Nature Genetics publication is one of three, one of the first of major papers describing the scientific findings from the MVP. Uh, this publication highlights the power of researchers having access to data from a large number of individuals. And in this particular instance, 
researchers were able to identify several novel genetic factors which affect people's um, blood lipid, the cholesterol and triglyceride levels, and their findings may lead to new approaches to diagnose people at risk for cardiovascular disease, as well as to identify appropriate therapeutic targets. So again, our hats off to the VA for their research and uh, leading the way on some important health uh, issues. Over to you, Richard. You know, historically, David, if I'm, if I'm correct, uh, the VA has uh, done a lot of uh, things in, in the medical area that kind of led the way in um, almost groundbreaking um, medical uh, programs or, you know, just like they're doing here. And uh, I know I, you and I have talked about that in the past, that, uh, you know, they just, they're just not there, you know, uh, providing medical treatment for veterans, but they're also quite a research body. And right. And it's good to see them, that they're continuing in that, in that trend with this, um, this new program. Well, many of their hospitals um, are and were intentionally built um, nearby uh, university medical schools, which also played a role in, in helping to promote research, but also the training of, of doctors and other medical personnel. And that's, that goes back many, many decades. <clears throat> so the VA has led the way, as you say, uh, in both research and, and care. And uh, we applaud them for all the great things that they're, they're doing, not just for veterans, but they also help other all Americans uh, through their research. Yeah, so, that's good stuff. But let's also now talk about some special projects, uh, which should be of interest to not only veterans, but all Americans. David Corey and I are in the early stages to create a multimedia program to inform the public and government officials about the cost of war, the cost of militarism, and the importance, practicality, and possibilities of peace building around the world. You can learn more from the website, stopwar.today. That's stopwar.today today, as well as on Facebook. Search for the phrase, Stop War Today. It's project of, it is a project of multiple organizations and individuals, including myself, David, and our film director, Greg Lovett. And we are relying on experts from the Cost of War Project of Browns University, as well as with the help of other groups, as well as experts and scholars in those fields. The Cost of War and Peacebuilding Multimedia Project will be created and publicized by a nonprofit organization called Image Essays. Check out their website at www.imageessays.org. Backslash. And if you are able, please make a donation to the cause through the website. David and I, um, on that note, David and I just returned from a very successful trip to, to Boston, uh, where we interviewed uh, a professor from Harvard, Linda Bilness from um, um, Boston University, Nita Crawford, and the author, Andrew Basevich, who is a retired colonel, army colonel. Uh, he attended West Point and received a um, degree from Princeton and has um, written a, a, a lot of books, a lot of great, great books. And what was, in, from my perspective, listening to these interviews was 
the, the different vantage, the different perspectives that each one of these experts had on the course of war. And, you know, um, what I try to do when I'm telling people about our project is to, to think way outside of the box when you're talking the cost of war. Not about putting our soldier in a uniform and sending him to fight somewhere, giving him a gun and feeding him. And then when he gets hurt, you bring him home and you take care of him. Yes, that's a very obvious course of war. But there are so many other hidden costs that uh, with the assistance of the course of war uh, project and uh, numerous other experts that are out there, uh, we're, we're hoping to highlight them in this uh, multimedia program. Our, our idea right now is to produce 15-minute segments that we're going to be able to put out there free of charge, uh, put them in the schools. And I, I think David, I'm not going to speak for David, he can speak for himself in about 30 seconds. But I think the, uh, the if we achieve anything, it's to get the discussion going. Because clearly, when you look at the facts, the statistics that have been developed over the last 20-some-odd years through these experts, and then you look at the history, going all the way back to 1973 with Richard Nixon, uh, you realize that Something has to change, and that's, you know, I just mentioned peace building around the world. Uh, some people might think that's a ludicrous idea. That can never happen. But guess what? If you don't try, uh, then you can't say it can never happen. And hopefully this documentary is going to be, going to cause people to start having the discussion. And when you have the discussion, when you start to communicate, you know, who knows what can happen on a positive front for for Americans as a whole. And maybe this sounds pretty glorious, but for the world as a whole. You know, we all have children. People in Syria have children. People in Afghanistan have children. Canada, China, everybody has children. Nobody wants to see their children affected by war. Nobody wants to see their children going off to war and not coming home. So, you know, as ludicrous or as it may sound to some, I believe uh, it's not at all because it's somewhere it has to start because the other way hasn't worked. And, um, you know, we, we keep getting into these confrontations, but we forget about the last confrontation we were in. You know, we forget how Vietnam ended. We forget how Korea ended. And we just jump back into another confrontation. And guess what? That's ending well, it's not even ending, but that's going as badly as Korea and as badly as Vietnam. So, um, David, why don't you jump in here? I Thanks. <laughs> yes, we had um, we interviewed um, Professor Linda Bilmes at uh, Harvard's uh, Kennedy School of Government last uh, Thursday morning, October the 11th. Very interesting interview. She's the co-author of a book uh, that was written 10 years ago called The Three Trillion Dollar War. Uh, the subtitle was The True Cost of the Iraq Conflict. Now, 10 years later, obviously that $3 trillion 
estimate has increased significantly. We also have the Afghanistan war, which is now in its 17th year involving the United States. Professor Bilmes in our interview made a number of, of very significant uh, points. Also uh, note that uh, if you check online, the Boston Globe newspaper had a column from, from Professor Bilmes that ran that, that day in which uh, she, she pointed out that it seems as if those wars have now been somewhat forgotten, that the media is kind of ignoring those wars and the costs that go with it. Uh, Americans, as uh, she told us in an interview, most Americans uh, seem unaware of the war and because they really don't seem to have a stake in the wars, uh, or some would say skin in the game, to use a, a sports analogy, that, uh, that they just go on about their lives and they don't realize really what their government is doing and the financial costs and human costs uh, of those wars. So what will it take? Uh, to, to get people to appreciate, to really feel like they have a stake in the wars. Well, that's where education, publicity is really going to be important. And one thing she pointed out in her research, that unlike uh, most prior wars, the post-9-11 wars were, were funded entirely by borrowing. You know, in prior wars, uh, including Vietnam, but Korea, World War II, that uh, the government would raise mon money for those wars, yes, to some extent by borrowing, but also by raising taxes and, and other sources of, of, of fundraising. Uh, and you don't see that. Uh, after 9-11, uh, when the government was preparing to invade Afghanistan, and then a year and a half later, in March of 2003, Ira invade Iraq, which had nothing to do with 9-11, by the way, uh, President uh, George W. Bush said, you know, America, just go about your business. Go shopping. You know, let your life be as normal as possible, which may sound good on a certain level, but it's really hurtful and harmful to, uh, to really America's own self-interest because Americans then have, have kind of turned a blind eye, really, to the cost of the war. And those costs, because all these wars are on the government credit card are affecting Americans now as well as future generations. They're affecting Americans now because, as Professor Bellman told us in our interviews, you know, this borrowing was done at a time when the interest rates were relatively low, a pretty unique time, because in various other points in time in our history, sometimes interest rates are very high, um, which creates a disincentive for borrowing. But think of this. Every million dollars, billion dollars, trillion dollars that's borrowed for war are dollars that are not available for many other uses uh, that might be able to address other more pressing needs uh, domestically for the United States. So, that was one point that she emphasized, which was these wars have been paid on the national credit card. And number two, America's representatives in Congress, as she noted in her research, because she did a lot of data mining of congressional hearings going all the way back to World 
War II, Korean War, Vietnam, etc., and she found in her research that the current wars have received practically minimal oversight by uh, by Congress compared to the prior wars where Congress would hold hearings, uh, relatively speaking, a lot more oversight of how money was being spent, uh, and uh, Congress was much more involved. Not the case now. These current wars are being funded not only, only on the government credit card, but are being paid largely through emergency funds, which normally are used for, just as the name suggests, you know, emergencies, the things for which there theoretically would be less time for planning and oversight. And uh, that's rather ludicrous to say when you have, like, the Afghanistan war going on for 17 years now. So she really faults Congress, lack of, uh, of hearings and oversight, over these wars and, and the financial costs. But uh, these wars have been incredibly expensive. Most Americans are really aren't paying attention. And as a result of not paying attention, and their elected representatives not paying attention, there's really no game plan on how these wars are going to end. What's the end game here? How do they plan to wrap up the Afghanistan war? Are we there in an indefinite uh, commitment? as we simultaneously expand our our uh, our presence around the world in this so-called never-ending global war on terror. So Professor Bilmes had a lot of excellent things to say. Uh, we recorded a rather lengthy interview, which we'll be using in multiple segments of our upcoming documentaries. Now, we also <laughs> excuse me, interviewed Professor Nita Crawford of Boston University, and as Richard said, retired uh, Professor Andrew Basevich, who's also a retired Army Colonel. Before we discuss those two, uh, let's go back over to Richard. Richard, what are your thoughts? Uh, I was, you know, just kind of mesmerized by um, Professor Bilmes's, um, just you know, the numbers when she when she put when she put all of this in in perspective from a numbers point of view. Um, and it really is shocking. And, you know, I almost kind of felt like an idiot <laughs> because, you know, the, these numbers are so bad and so costly. And, you know, the cost is, you know, not to my generation, but to my children and my grandchildren and my, you know, children's grandchildren. And, you know, they're the ones who are going to have to bear this burden. You know, when I asked her some questions, one of them I, I talked to her about, you know, we're borrowing this money, and which, you know, great, it was at a, it's at a very low interest rate, but we could have been in a position where we could have borrowed that money and instead of putting 100% of that money into war building, we could have put a lot of that money into our own infrastructure. And David and I are going to be getting into this aspect of the cost of war. But wouldn't it have been nice if we, if we could have put $400 billion into you know, re repairing our roads and our bridges and our airports 
in this country for future generations to enjoy. I've traveled around a little bit this summer. Uh, I was in Chicago O'Hare Airport, and I thought I was, uh, want to knock a third world country, but I thought I was in a third world country. It was awful. And, uh, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't have a, a, an airport such as O'Hare or any airport in such a dilapidated condition as, as it uh, currently is. So these future generations not only are going to have to pay off this conflict we've been in for the last 17 years, but we're going to, they're going to also someday have to probably figure out how to afford um, infrastructure. But sooner or later, we're going to have to address that issue. And we're going to need to address our roads and our bridges and our airports. And, you know, so if we don't start doing that soon and, and we have the opportunity to do that with you know, borrowing this money at an extremely low interest rate, but that opportunity, basically what Professor Billman said, is, is gone. So we can't go back to that. Yeah. So well, if I, could I, add, I, if I could add, I invite everybody to to read her book, and she's coming out with a new book. So um, I invite everybody to you know Google her and and just start look at you know look into different articles she's written. But she's a wealth of, of knowledge and information that we all all when I say all well, all of us Americans could benefit from. What were you going to say, David? Um, and and when you look at things, even just from the financial or economic point of view, to have spent uh, $3 trillion or $4 trillion, or the estimates are creeping up to $5 trillion, which includes future costs for veteran benefits, um, which, as she pointed out, tend not to start really peaking. This the VA health care costs for veterans and disability compensation until 40 years after war ends. That was the case with World War I veterans, World War II veterans, Vietnam veterans. So we're going to be paying, in future, the next couple generations are going to be paying for the costs of these wars. And you may ask yourself, all right, well, war is expensive, we get that, but what are we getting from that? What, what in terms of U.S. security have we gained by this endless war and occupation of a third world country, Afghanistan. Um, yes, they were the host country where Al-Qaeda was hanging out. But Al-Qaeda, uh, we got the main uh, characters, including bin Laden. Uh, but they've also spread around the world. Why are we continuing to, to occupy Afghanistan? Uh, it's, it's sort of an endless perpetual, even self-perpetuating war. So I echo what you're saying, Richard. Um, Professor Bilmus is working on a new book called The Ghost Budget, which talks about the budget process. But she takes a very uh, critical and analytical view of uh, how these wars, Iraq and Afghanistan, have been paid for, what the, what the full costs are, and the lack of oversight by Congress and the lack of attention by the American people. Um, so, if if uh, I encourage people to um, to read the book, the Three Trillion Dollar War, it was co-authored by Joseph Stiglitz, 
and Linda Bilmes, her last name is spelled B-I-L-M-E-S. And she's a professor at the Harvard Kennedy School of uh, Government. Uh, we also interviewed that same day, Thursday, Professor Nita Crawford, uh, who's the chairperson of the Political Science Department at Boston University. She's also the author of a, a, a very detailed, very thoroughly researched analysis, uh, and it called, and the book is called "Accountability for Killing." Subtitle: Moral Responsibility for Collateral Damage in America's Post-9/11 Wars. And in this book, she uh, discusses and analyzes uh, the the whole term of collateral damage, which translates into the death and suffering injuries of civilians in these wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and and other countries that have that have followed, and uh, and discusses the idea of, of moral responsibility. Um, yes, since the Vietnam War, U.S. military has has made a greater effort to try to minimize uh, the death and suffering of civilians. But this is war, and despite those efforts, we know there is a lot of civilian death and destruction. In fact, Far more, you know, uh, you know, uh, hundreds of times more <clears throat> in terms of civilian deaths than in military deaths. So when they talk about well, collateral damage, many people may think, well, there's just so there are a few incidental deaths, a few relatively few, but that's not the case. The reality is in Iraq and Afghanistan, the vast majority, hundreds of thousands of civilians. Have have died in these wars, and uh, the question is, you know, what 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 should the United States be doing differently? Where is the accountability uh, for that, uh, both at the individual soldier level, the chain of command, uh, the U.S. government, and even in a certain sense, as far as political accountability, American people holding their representatives responsible. But again, it seems like most Americans just go about their lives. Oblivious, really not caring, apathetic to to these wars, as uh, Professor Crawford pointed out in her interview, just a very tiny percentage, maybe less than one percent of Americans are serving in the military, and a very small percentage are working directly in defense industries whose paycheck depends on these wars. Now, you might say, yeah, the military-industrial complex has an outside in has has a an outsized influence. Uh, I'd agree with that, uh, but the fact remains that the vast majority of Americans really feel unaffected by these wars. They feel unaffected financially, as Professor Bilma has pointed out, because they don't feel the effect of higher taxes, of uh, other efforts by the government to raise money, or, you know, as you saw as people that lived through World War II saw through rationing of resources, a large part of national sacrifice everyone felt in World War II, and even to some extent in Korea. And in Vietnam with the draft, um, you know, most Americans felt that one way or the other. Not so with the current all-volunteer force and uh, uh, the other elements of, 
of the way war is fought today. The average American really is not expected to sacrifice. Why? It's all put on the government credit card. They really don't care. So that brings us to the point that Richard mentioned earlier, which is part of this multimedia project is to raise awareness. Very important. So any of our listeners are interested in uh, contributing this project, check out our website, which is stopwar.today. And if you care to uh, volunteer, you can contact us. Our contact information is on that website, stopwar.today. If you're able to make a financial contribution, go to the donate page, and you can either donate online or by sending a check to the address that's on that page. We really encourage you to, to help us. It's a very worthy uh, cause. We're trying to promote knowledge and insight. And the other part of it uh, being, of course, the promotion of, of peace over this idea that, that the military is, is the only tool in our toolbox when we're dealing with international issues. You know, David, if I uh, might jump also, in here. Yeah, yeah go ahead. Uh, one of the things that, uh, to our listeners out there, if, if you can get some of these books by these um, <clears throat> these people that we've interviewed uh, and get, like David, to get knowledgeable, because then you can go to, to your congressman with some facts and figures and, and raise some questions, because quite frankly, I have little faith in our congressmen and women knowing really what these costs of war are. I, you know, I, I don't see them sitting down and with an online budget, uh, item, by, item by item by item, figuring out what, what these numbers really are. And, uh, you know, if, if you were doing a, your budget at home and you had to budget your utility bill and your, your internet and your, your cable bill and your, your garbage bill, you have light, uh, line items and you want to make sure that at the end of the day it balanced out. Well, this is no different. And yes, it's more complicated, but at the end of the day, we should be able to do the same thing. Um, so when you start reading these books and you realize that we really haven't been doing that line item budgeting that we should be doing, um, I think it'll open your eyes and maybe then you'll start, quote unquote, having some skin in the game, which seems to be uh, based on the three people we interviewed last week in Boston, a common theme amongst the three of them is that today there is no skin in the game. So back to you, David. Uh, very true, very true. And uh, the third uh, person we interviewed, which was last uh, Friday the 12th, was retired Professor Andrew Basevich. As Richard mentioned, he's also a retired Army uh, colonel, West Point uh, graduate. He's the author of many, many books on international relations, on the military, on uh, the United States' uh, ongoing wars, in the Middle East, so just a uh, wealth of a lot of great information. He has a new book coming out in November, and all these authors, you go get their books from Amazon.com and other sources. Professor Basevich made a number of uh, points during our interview, uh, 
and as I say, our interview will be made part of a series of documentaries. Professor Rasevich mentioned that, uh, you know, that, that in his view, the invasion of Iraq was an absolute, total mistake and a disaster. Uh, Saddam Hussein, while a ruthless dictator, posed no threat to the United States. His country was not involved in any way with the 9-11 attacks. They did not have weapons of mass destruction. Our intelligence was entirely faulty on that point. And the war was just poorly run on top of all that. Um, as <clears throat> one of the myths that Americans tend to buy into, and this was a myth that um, Professor Crawford also mentioned in her interview, one of the myths is that Americans think that wars can be done with, for very little cost and it will be over very quickly. We found out in Vietnam that was not the case. We found now for the last 17 years in Afghanistan, that's definitely not the case either. The same for Iraq. Uh, there's really no end in sight, uh, both in Afghanistan as well as kind of the broken Middle East, where things have uh, you know, been continuing to have problems in, in Iraq, but there's also problems in Yemen and Syria and some other countries as well as in some countries in Africa. So where does this all go? Where does it all go? Well, first of all, Professor Bases' view, in hindsight, uh, we should not have invaded uh, Iraq in the war uh, with respect to Afghanistan. should have been dealt with entirely differently. We should have treated the terrorists as international criminals and gone after them in that fashion as opposed to uh, opening up the, you know, the military and treating this as a, as a global war which we now see as the so-called global war on terror. So no one is, in any way is, is, has said that we shouldn't aggressively go after the terrorists responsible for 9-11 or any current terrorists, but to fight it in the manner that we are is um, rather foolish. It's ineffective. As Professor Vajicic said, you know, where, what have we gotten from this? What have, what have been the benefits of spending these trillions of dollars uh, what is that? Uh, and clearly, it's really not there. Uh, we spent an incredible amount of money, a lot of waste, and uh, there's really no end in sight. So, uh, with that in mind, it really is an appropriate time to uh, get a debate going on these issues. Not going to be easy. Uh, as Professor Basevich noted, Americans can get very, very angry about things and during at that time be motivated to force their elected representatives to take action. Well, unfortunately, the other side of the coin is America, most Americans' attention span is very brief. So they may get angry and then their attention is distracted by something else in the news cycle and they don't follow up. So that's why an ongoing uh, multimedia effort is really really going to be needed to be just as persistent as, as possible. So three excellent author, authors um, later this week will be traveling to Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island to interview Professor Catherine Lutz, uh, who is one of the directors of the Brown University's Costs of War project. She will be uh, interviewed um, it's Thursday, and we'll be talking about the cost of war 
on many different levels, human levels, financial, political, social, uh, the whole spectrum, uh, hopefully in, in great detail. So that should be interesting. And then um, following up uh, next week at the United States Institute of Peace, the USIP in Washington, which is having, uh, which is hosting on Wednesday, the 24th, uh, the first day of a three-day conference called PeaceCon 2018. The second two days are will be at a different location by some um, non-governmental peace organization. But there will should be hundreds of people and uh, many dozens of groups represented at this uh, conference at the United States Institute of Peace. And uh, we'll be there, hopefully, to meet and interview as many people as we possibly can and uh, see what we can learn. It should be uh, very interesting. And again, for those of you listening uh, that may be interested in learning more about this project, go to our website, which is stopwar.today. If you can donate or volunteer your time, you can find out how to do that on that website. So before we go to a wrap-up uh, for tonight, uh, Richard, any any other thoughts? No, I just, uh, you know, the more we uh, dive into this stuff, David, the more I, I know we're on the right track. I'm constantly uh, talking up our, our project, our website, talking up the people we've interviewed so far, uh, the goals of our project, and uh, especially the young people, you know, the young young people who were for a very long time really haven't thought about it. And I was talking to my son-in-law tonight, and I mentioned that phrase to him about having a stake in the game. And it was really funny because he... he He's a really smart guy. He owns his own business. And he said, you know, Pops, I never thought of it that way. And I told him, you know, about the previous wars and generations and how they had some sort of stake in the game. And, um, you know, maybe his generation needs to start thinking that way. You need to start having that stake in the game because it'll just be a perpetual war. I mean, you know, the Middle East is a problem. And uh, somehow, someway, it's going to have to be resolved and we can't keep spilling blood over all this oil because that's what we're doing. And it's American blood. And it's American families that are that are suffering as a result of all of this. And, you know, the sooner we all grasp that reality, uh, the better off we're all going to be. Because it's not... If I could add something, too, an important theme is that people need to realize that war is not inevitable. Peace is possible, it is practical, and it really is necessary. And when when you point out kind of the mess the Middle East is, that's true. But even within the Middle East, there are peaceful countries, there are countries that have managed to get along... Remember back in the in the 1970s when President Carter uh, got Israel and Egypt together for a for a peace treaty? That's just one example. It's possible, and there have certainly been times when the United States um, 
got along with Saddam Hussein back in the 80s. And uh, so it is possible that we can get along with people even though they they may be imperfect leaders. Go ahead. Look at at, uh, Germany in in Europe. I mean, everything that that Germany did in Europe during World War I and World War II, and now look at them. They're they're all together. They're all united. Yeah, and you can largely thank the United States um, for the Marshall Plan, for rebuilding Germany and Europe, as well as to uh, shift the entire mindset of Germany away from, uh, you know, Nazism uh, to democratic uh, government. And so there was conscious efforts, hard work behind all that. It just didn't happen on its own. Uh, so, but we're saying that that's an example that needs to be followed. People do need to feel they have a stake in this and that they have some responsibility for it. So that's that's the that's the uh, project. It's a great project. We ask people to jump on board this, uh, as Cat Stevens would say, a peace train, and uh, let's get moving. So our time's about out for tonight, Richard. So why don't we close with our uh, weekly reminder on the coaching and the care program for veterans and their families? Absolutely, that's such a <clears throat> vital program uh, program for our veterans. We, that's why we like to. Uh, Close the show with that. Just a reminder: get your pens and uh, get your pen and paper out. Write this number down as I give it to you. Um, about the coaching in the care program, it helps veterans having difficulty transitioning to home life. Returning home can be a tough adjustment, and loved ones can help. Coaching in the care offers free coaching to help you help your veteran. Give the program a call. Here you go. Toll free: one eight 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 two three seven four five eight. Its hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Again, the VA's coaching and the care number is one 823 In addition, I would like to once again remind listeners that if you know a veteran who is suicidal or in a crisis of any kind, the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs also has the Veterans Crisis Line to help. Call 1-800-273-8255. And press one. Many veterans have committed suicide because they did not get the help they needed. Help them get the care they need to cope with their problems. Once again, the Veterans Crisis Line can help. Call 1-800-273-8255 and press one. Back to you, David. Well, it's time for us to go for this evening. We'd like to thank you all for listening to the Veterans News Hour here on BBS Radio Station One. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Joyce and Joe Chivroli and Corey and Hurley Law Group. We'd also like to thank our producer at BBS Radio, Mr. Doug Newsom. Uh, we hope you'll tune in next week, uh, the same time, same station, for another edition of the Veterans News Hour. Until then, we hope you have a great week. Good night. Good night. Thank you for listening to the Veterans News Hour with David Corey and Richard Hurley. We hope you found this week's program very informative. Be sure to invite your friends and all the veterans you know to tune in next week when we'll have another great show on veterans issues. Meanwhile, you can listen to our other recorded episodes on the Veterans News Hour webpage on bbsradio.com. Thanks again for listening to the Veterans News Hour.